Welcome again to the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I have a book in front of me by Hank Hennegraff. Uh, it's called The Complete Bible Answer Book, and actually what it is is a compilation taken from the first one that he did called The Bible Answer Book. That was back in 2004, and then he had The Bible Answer Book, Volume 2. That was 2006. So they put, uh, I guess, the best together in uh, a single book here. So this is The Complete Bible Answer Book. But you can get most of the same questions in those other two volumes if you choose. And what Hank does here that I like a lot is he gives short, uh, succinct, well-thought-out answers to a ton of questions. I'm not even sure. Let's see if they have a total of how many questions. 172 questions that people might ask about Christianity. Everything from first section is basic Christian thought and spiritual growth spiritual gifts, holidays, the nature and character of God, basic apologetics, Old Testament issues, New Testament issues, historical Jesus and Christology, religions and cults, discernment and aberrant teachings, spiritual warfare, pseudo-scientific apologetics. That one's a fun one. And then uh, Christianity and science. Uh, I just have to touch on that pseudo-scientific apologetics. He does not believe in Bible codes. Have you heard of that? The idea is if you started at some verse, let's say in Genesis, and you count, let's say, every sixth word or every sixth letter, that you put those things together and they create all sorts of special codes, special knowledge, and he says, uh, nope. Then there's also uh, some a group that believes that the gospel is in the stars as far as like the zodiac and things like that. So he calls that pseudoscientific apologetics and is not a fan of that. Um, anyway, so I wanted to look especially at the sections earlier in the book. Let me start with this one on uh, page 88 because these are, these are crucial. Is the Trinity biblical? And he said, uh, people are now coming up with the idea that it, the Trinity came out of pagan sources. But he says, no, it is biblical. He said, it's true. The word Trinity, just like the word incarnation, is not in Scripture. But it says that's what we find in the Bible. And he makes it real simple. Greg Kokel covers something like this in a lengthier talk. But in short, what does the Trinity mean? Well, there are three parts to it. One, there's just one God. Number two, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Number three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally distinct. And he just walks through those. Uh, the first one is pretty easy to understand, that there's only one God. Poly Christianity is not polytheistic, it's monotheistic. And he quotes Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. And then listen to this part. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. What about the second plank? Well, over and over throughout the scripture there, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are declared to be fully and completely God. Now, he doesn't spend a lot of time giving you a ton of, of references. You can get those on your own, but he just touches lightly on these. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is but one God, the Father, and in Hebrews 1.8, the Father is speaking of the Son. He says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And then in Acts 5.3-4, when Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, Peter said, 
you didn't lie to men, you lied to God. So that makes all three of them God. And the third plank is showing that they're eternally distinct, that the Father and the Son love one another, they speak to each other, so they're separate, and together they send the Holy Spirit, that's in John 15, 26. Jesus in John 8, 14 to 18 says that he and the Father are two distinct witnesses and two distinct judges. So the Trinity is something that is affirmed in the Bible. And I like it too. At the end of every one of his little references, his answers to these questions, he always tells you where you could go for further study. And I think that's important because keep in mind, Hank is giving short answers here that for some people they'll want more depth. But in this one, he says, for further study, see James White, The Forgotten Trinity. James White has written a lot on this and uh, does a good job. Let's take another one of his uh, questions here that he deals with. Is there evidence for life after death? Well, that's about as important as it gets. I've got a talk on that, and uh, you can go to my website and, and see that. He says uh, he uses a lot of J.P. Moreland for his answer, so that's another reason I appreciate Hanegraaff. He uses other people. It's not just strictly his own thoughts of this. So he's using J.P. Moreland here to advance some good arguments for the existence of the soul. He says, first of all, the mind is not identical to the brain. And you can see that because the mind and the brain have different properties. So Moreland says things like our mental experiences, feeling pain or experiencing sound, awareness of color, that's different from anything that's just physical. So if the world was only made of matter, then you wouldn't have those subjective aspects of consciousness, but they do exist. So there's got to be more to the world than just matter, you know, like color, take color. It's, it's more than just a mere wavelength of light, says people experience color in a different way. Okay, here's a second reason to believe life after death. If human beings were merely material, they couldn't be held accountable this year for a crime that they committed some time ago because... Physical identity changes over time. We're losing particles of us. And uh, Hank claims every seven years, virtually every part of our anatomy changes, except for part of our neurological system. So the person who's committed a crime in the past is not really the same person. A criminal who tried to use this kind of argument, though, and as a defense, wouldn't get very far. I mean, we recognize, don't we, the sameness of the soul that goes on over time. Personal identity keeps up over time. Then a third way to argue this is we have freedom of the will. We know that we're not material robots. I mean, if you're just a material being, you're just a bunch of chemicals sloshing around, then your choices are just a result of brain chemistry and genetic makeup. So you wouldn't have any free decisions. You, were, you would be fatalistically determined, and that's profound. So you wouldn't be held morally accountable for your actions. So he says the other... Proof, of course, would be from the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, that's a whole separate issue. We said that indicates there's a soul because life is going on after death. All right, let's do another one. Uh, let's go to 146. Here uh, he's answering the question, does the Bible promote polygamy? Gee, we see it all through the Old Testament, don't we? But he says that was never God's perfect plan. He says, look in Genesis. The ideal pattern is a monogamous marriage, one man, one woman. That's Genesis 2.24. And Jesus and Paul quote that when they talk about the sacredness of monogamous marriage. It's in Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7. 
In addition, Hank says the Bible condemns the polygamy of Old Testament kings. If you look in Deuteronomy 17, 17. And in the New Testament, what do elders and deacons have to do? They must be the husband of but one wife. So that's the standard there. And then I think maybe the most powerful part is his last comment, that you can see God does not like polygamy because we see over and over again all the strife and the temptations that accompanied the practice. People who are polygamous in the Old Testament don't do very well. Solomon, great example, had all this wisdom and ended up with civil strife and idolatry and all because his wives, as it says in 1 Kings 11, his wives turned his heart after other gods. So it's in the Old Testament, but just because it's mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean it's accepted and appreciated. So this is, uh, this is showing you what's in there, but it doesn't tell you that that's what you ought to do. Somebody, I think it was Tim Keller, said that uh, polygamy and then things like uh, the eldest son always getting everything, primogenitor, that the Bible underscores these kinds of things. Uh, for example, the older son, over and over again through Scripture, is not always the one that gets the blessing and gets the good things handed to him. Think of David as a prime example. Okay, so there's that one. Um, let's go. We've got enough time. Let's do another couple here. Page 159. How could Pharaoh be morally responsible if God hardened his heart? So it says, Apostle Paul says in Romans 9 that God hardened his heart. Well, wait a minute. If God determined to harden his heart, then how is God just in holding Pharaoh morally responsible? Well, that's true. God did promise Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, but the Exodus account, as you go on reading it, underscores the fact that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let me give you just a few references in Exodus 7, 13, and 22, 8, 15, and 19, and 32, and Exodus 9, 7. So in, instead of God doing a deterministic kind of thing of hardening his heart, he presented Pharaoh with all sorts of opportunities to repent or to continue, continue in rebellion. Every time God showed Pharaoh mercy, and he got rid of a plague. What did Pharaoh do? He responded in stubborn disobedience. So actually, God's mercy was a way that, um, in a sense, was the occasion for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Finally, in dealing with the issue, Hank says, the Apostle Paul begins with a presupposition that God judges all men justly. That's Romans 3, 5 through 8. So people like Pharaoh... Paul says, are prepared for destruction because that's what they will. That's what they want. So every time God gave an opportunity to repent, like Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts in disobedience and unbelief. All right, so we still have a few more minutes. Let's go to another question. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Well, where are people getting that? Well, Acts 2.38 says, these are Peter's words, repent and be baptized. So a bunch of uh, groups of people have latched onto that and says, see? But Hank says, Scripture does not support this view at all. So says, even in the book of, all, all through the book of Acts, baptism is a sign of conversion, not the means of conversion. It says, in fact, if you look at Acts 10.47, there were some believers who had the Holy Spirit prior to being baptized. Then, of course, you got the thief on the cross with Jesus, Jesus says to him, today, this is Luke 23, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief had no chance to be baptized. And over and over again, the Bible talks about faith, faith, 
Faith is the way you get saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, it's by faith from first to last to have our righteous standing. That's Romans 1, 17. And when the jailer asked Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? Paul says, what? Be baptized? No. Acts 16, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So he says, uh, Hank is saying that baptism is not a means by which we're saved, but it's a way that we're set apart. So I think that was a good, good uh, comment about that one. Here's one. Uh, did James teach salvation by works? This has gotten a lot of uh, play that Paul talks about faith alone and James talks about works. And so are they actually in uh, competition? Are they in conflict with each other? Well, no. Uh, James 2.24 says a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Uh-oh. Is that a problem? Well, he says if you look at it more closely, and of course that's the key to all of this, isn't it? To read not just a verse, but read the whole section of uh, the scripture. We're not saved by what we do, by what Christ has done. So what's James talking about here? Well, he's teaching we're saved not by works, but the kind of faith that produces good works. And if you look in James 2, here's what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Well, no. And furthermore, when James says a person is not justified by faith alone, he means a person is not justified by just mental assent. So demons believe, don't they? They have mental assent. They certainly believe that there is a God, but they fail to place their hope and trust in him. So it does look like a contrast just on the surface. James says a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Paul says man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. They're in harmony. James is countering that false idea that if you just say your faith, that'll save you. That's not faith. That's, that's a false assertion. That's not a good substitute for a saving faith. And Paul is also countering a fallacious notion that salvation can be earned by observing the law. And as he says, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That's a referencing the reformers there. Well, maybe we'll just do one more, okay? Is that all right? Do women have to be silent in the church? Oh, man. I've, I've done a lot of reading on that because uh, I find that fascinating. After all, what happens? We've got First uh, Timothy saying this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Well, Paul doesn't really mean to say women always have to be silent, but in that society, women are largely illiterate and unlearned. He says, wait, a woman should learn first, and then she can presume to teach. If he had intended to say women must always be silent, he wouldn't have given women instructions on how to pray or prophesy publicly in church. That's 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul is trying to refute what was going on in that society. We don't know that society very well today. But then there was a matriarchal authoritarianism that the pagans pushed really hard, like in Ephesus where Timothy was. That was the home of a cult dedicated to a pagan goddess, Artemis. And uh, that thing had a female priesthood they had dominion, authoritative dominion over male worshipers. So Paul is saying women shouldn't presume undue authority over men. He doesn't elevate women over men, nor men over women, but he's concerned that they be granted equal opportunity 
to learn and to grow in submission to each other and to God. You see that in 1 Timothy 2.11 and Ephesians 5.21. Well, I hope this gives you an idea of the kinds of things that Hank Hanegraaff covers. Uh, there's so many interesting places here. It's, it's almost like eating peanuts. It's hard to, unless you have a peanut allergy. <laughs> but it's hard not to just keep going. You find one article and you go, oh, that looks interesting. And you, you look at Hank's answer and then you find something else. So um, be prepared. If you have this book, you'll spend <laughs> probably more time than you planned on. But it's called the Complete Bible Answer Book. First one is the Complete Bible, uh, the Bible Answer Book 1. Then there's a Bible Answer Book 2. This is a compilation of both of them. I think you would enjoy it.